Chapter Four of Popular History of Ireland, Book Twelve by Thomas Darcy McGee, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Four, O'Connell's Leadership, eighteen thirteen to eighteen twenty one. While the veto controversy was carried into the press and the parliamentary debates, the extraordinary events of the last years of Napoleon's reign became of such extreme interest as to cast into the shade all questions of domestic policy. The parliamentary fortunes of the Catholic question varied with the fortunes of the war, and the remoteness of external danger. Thus, in 1815, Sir Henry Parnell's motion for a committee was rejected by a majority of 228 to 147. In 1816, on Mr. Grattan's similar motion, the vote was 172 to 141. In 1817, Mr. Grattan was again defeated by 245 to 221. In this season, an act exempting officers in the army and navy from forswearing transubstantiation passed and became law. The internal condition of the Catholic body, both in England and Ireland, during all those years, was far from enviable. In England there were Cisalpine and Ultramontane factions. In Ireland, vetoists and anti-vetoists. The learned and amiable Charles Butler, among jurists the ornament of his order, was fiercely opposed to the no less learned Dr. Milner, author of The End of Controversy, and Letters to a Prebendary. In Ireland, a very young barrister, who had hardly seen the second anniversary of his majority, electrified the aggregate meetings with a new Franco-Irish order of eloquence, naturally enough employed in the maintenance of the Gallican ideas of church and government. This was Richard Lehor Scheel, the author of two or three successful tragedies, and the man next to O'Connell, who wielded the largest tribunician power over the Irish populace during the whole of the subsequent agitation. Educated at Stonyhurst, he imbibed from refugee professors French idioms and a French standard of taste, while, strangely enough, O'Connell, to whom he was at first opposed, and of whom he became afterwards the first lieutenant, educated in France by British refugees, acquired the cumbrous English style of the Douay Bible and the Rem Testament. The contrast between the two men was in every way extreme, physically, mentally, and politically, but it is pleasant to know that their differences never degenerated into distrust, envy, or malice, that, in fact, Daniel O'Connell had, throughout all his after-life, no more steadfast personal friend than Richard Lailor Scheel. In the progress of the Catholic agitation, the next memorable incident was O'Connell's direct attack on the Prince Regent. That powerful personage, the de facto sovereign of the realm, had long amused the Irish Catholics with promises and pledges of being favourable to their cause. At an aggregate meeting, in June 1812, Mr. O'Connell maintained that there were four distinct pledges of this description in existence. 1. One given in 1806, through the Duke of Bedford, then Lord Lieutenant, to induce the Catholics to withhold their petitions for a time. 2. Another given the same year in the Prince's name by Mr. Ponsonby, then Chancellor. 3 a pledge given to Lord Kenmar, in writing, when at Cheltenham. 4. A verbal pledge given to Lord Fingal, in the presence of Lords Clifford and Peter, and reduced to writing and signed by these three noblemen, soon after quitting the Prince's presence. Over the meeting at which this indictment was preferred, Lord Fingal presided, and the celebrated witchery resolutions, referring to the influence then exercised on the Prince by Lady Hartford, were proposed by his Lordship's son, Lord Killeen. It may, therefore, be fairly assumed that the existence of the fourth pledge was proved. The first and second were never denied, and as to the third, that given to Lord Kenmar, the only correction ever made was, 
that the prince's message was delivered verbally by his private secretary, Colonel McMahon, and not in writing. Lord Kenmar, who died in the autumn of 1812, could not be induced, from a motive of delicacy, to reduce his recollection of this message to writing, but he never denied that he had received it, and O'Connell, therefore, during the following years, always held the prince accountable for this, as for his other promises. Much difference of opinion arose as to the wisdom of attacking a person in the position of the prince, but O'Connell, fully persuaded of the utter worthlessness of the declarations made in that quarter, decided for himself that the bold course was the wise course. The effect already was various. The English Whigs, the prince's early and constant friends, who had followed him to links that honour could hardly sanction, and who had experienced his hollow-heartedness when lately called to govern during his father's illness, they, of course, were not sorry to see him held up to odium in Ireland, as a dishonoured gentleman and a false friend. The Irish Whigs, of whom Lord Moira and Mr. Ponsonby were the leaders, and to whom Mr. Grattan might be said to be attached rather than to belong, saw the rupture with regret, but considered it inevitable. Among the prince's friends the attacks upon him in the Dublin meetings were regarded as little short of treason, while by himself it is well known that the witchery resolutions of 1812 were neither forgotten nor forgiven. The political position of the Holy See at this period was such as to induce and enable an indirect English influence to be exercised, through that channel, upon the Irish Catholic movement. Pope Pius VII, a prisoner in France, had delegated to several persons at Rome certain vicarious powers, to be exercised in his name, in case of necessity. Of these, more than one had followed him into exile, so that the position of his representative devolved at length, upon Monsignor Quarantati, who early in 1814, addressed a rescript to Dr. Pointer, vicar apostolic of the London district, commendatory of the Bill of 1813, including the veto, and the ecclesiastical commission proposed by Canning and Castlereagh. Against these dangerous concessions, as they considered them, the Irish Catholics dispatched their remonstrances to Rome, through the agency of the celebrated Wexford Franciscan, Father Richard Hayes. But this clergyman, having spoken with too great freedom, was arrested, and suffered several months' confinement in the Eternal City. A subsequent embassy of Dr. Murray, coadjutor to the Archbishop of Dublin, on behalf of his brother prelates, was attended with no greater advantage, though the envoy himself was more properly treated. On his return to Ireland, at a meeting held to hear his report, several strong resolutions were unanimously adopted, of which the spirit may be judged from the following, the concluding one of the series. Though we sincerely venerate the Supreme Pontiff as visible head of the Church, we do not conceive that our apprehensions for the safety of the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland can or ought to be removed by any determination of His Holiness, adopted or intended to be adopted, not only without our concurrence, but in direct opposition to our repeated resolutions, and the very energetic memorial presented on our behalf, and so ably supported by our deputy, the Most Reverend Dr. Murray, who in that quality was more competent to inform His Holiness of the real state and interests of the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland than any other with whom he is said to have consulted. The resolutions were transmitted to Rome, signed by the two archbishops present, by Dr. Everard, the coadjutor of the Archbishop of Cashel, by Dr. Murray, the coadjutor of the Archbishop of Dublin, by the bishops of Meath, Cloyne, Clonfort, Kerry, Waterford, Derry, Archenry, Killala, Killaloe, Kilmore, Ferns, Limerick, Elfin, Cork, Down, and Connor, Ossery, Raffoe, Clogger, Dromore, Kildare, and Leyland, 
Ardog, and the Warden of Galway. Dr. Murray and Dr. Murphy, Bishop of Cork, were commissioned to carry this new remonstrance to Rome, and the greatest anxiety was felt for the result of their mission. A strange result of this new imbroglio in the Catholic cause was that it put the people on the defensive for their religious liberties, not so much against England as against home. The unlucky Italian Monsignor, who had volunteered his sanction of the veto, fared scarcely better at the popular gatherings than Lord Castlereagh or Mr. Peel. Monsieur Forty-Eight, as he was nicknamed, in reference to some strange story of his ancestor taking his name from a lucky lottery ticket of that number, was declared to be no better than a common orangeman, and if the bitter denunciations uttered against him, on the Liffey and the Shannon, had only been translated into Italian, the courtly prelate must have been exceedingly amazed at the democratic fury of a Catholic population, as orthodox as himself, but much more jealous of state interference with things spiritual. The second order of the clergy were hardly behind the laity, in the fervor of their opposition to the rescript of 1814. Then, entire body, secular and regular, residing in and about Dublin, published a very strong protest against it, headed by Dr. Blake, afterwards Bishop of Dromore, in which it was denounced as pregnant with mischief, and entirely non-obligatory upon the Catholic Church in Ireland. The several ecclesiastical provinces followed up these declarations with a surprising unanimity, and although a vetoistical address to His Holiness was dispatched by the Cisalpine Club in England, the Irish ideas of church government triumphed at Rome. Doctors Murray and Milner were received with his habitual kindness by Pius VII. The illustrious Cardinal Gonsalvi was appointed by the Pope to draw up an explanatory rescript, and Monsignor Quarantati was removed from his official position. The firmness manifested at that critical period by the Irish Church has since been known with many encomiums by all the successors of Pope Pius VII. The Irish government under the new viceroy, Lord Whitworth, the former ambassador to Napoleon, conceiving that the time had come, in the summer of 1814, to suppress the Catholic board, a proclamation forbidding His Majesty's subjects to attend future meetings of that body issued from Dublin Castle on the 3rd of June. The leaders of the body, after consultation at Mr. O'Connell's residence, decided to bow to this proclamation and to meet no more as a board, but this did not prevent them, in the following winter, from holding a new series of aggregate meetings, far more formidable, in some respects, than the deliberative meetings which had been suppressed. In the vigorous and somewhat aggressive tone taken at these meetings, Lord Fingal, the chief of the Catholic peerage, did not concur, and he accordingly withdrew for some years from the agitation. Mr. Scheel, the Bellews, Mr. Ball, Mr. Wise of Waterford, and a few others, following his example. With O'Connell remained the O'Connor Don, Messrs. Finlay and Ludwill, Protestants, Purcell O'Gorman, and other popular persons. But the cause sustained a heavy blow in the temporary retirement of Lord Fingal and his friends, and an attempt to form a Catholic association in 1815, without their cooperation, signally failed. During the next five years, the fortunes of the great Irish question fluctuated with the exigencies of imperial parties. The Second American War had closed, if not gloriously, at least without considerable loss to England. Napoleon had exchanged Elba for St. Helena, Wellington was the Achilles of the Empire, and Castlereagh its Ulysses. Yet it was not in the nature of those free islanders, the danger and pressure of foreign war removed, to remain always indifferent to the two great questions of domestic policy, Catholic emancipation and parliamentary reform. 
In the session of 1816, a motion of Sir John Newport's to inquire into the state of Ireland was successfully resisted by Sir Robert Peel, but the condition and state of public feeling in England could not be as well ignored by a Parliament sitting in London. In returning from the opening of the Houses in January, 1817, the Regent was hooted in the street, and his carriage riddled with stones. A reward of one thousand pounds, issued for the apprehension of the ringleaders, only gave additional eclat to the fact, without leading to the apprehension of the assailants. The personal unpopularity of the Regent seems to have increased, in proportion as death removed him from all those who stood nearest to the throne. In November 1817, his oldest child, the Princess Charlotte, married to Leopold, since King of Belgium, died in childbed. In 1818, the aged Queen Charlotte died. In January 1820, the old king, in the eighty-second year of his age, departed this life. Immediately afterwards, the former Princess of Wales, long separated from her profligate husband, returned from the continent to claim her rightful position as Queen Consort. The disgraceful accusations brought against her, the trial before the House of Lords which followed, the courage and eloquence of her council, Brougham and Denham, the eagerness with which the people made her cause their own, are all well-remembered events, and all beside the purpose of this history. The unfortunate lady died after a short illness, on the 7th of August, 1821, the same month in which His Majesty, George the Fourth departed on that Irish journey, so satirized in the undying verse of Moore and Byron. Two other deaths, far more affecting than any among the mortalities of royalty, marked the period at which we have arrived. These were the death of Curran in 1817, and the death of Grattan in 1820. Curran, after his failure to be returned for Newry in 1812, had never again attempted public life. He remained in his office of Master of Rolls, but his health began to fail sensibly. During the summers of 1816 and 17, he sought for recreation in Scotland, England, and France, but the charm which travel could not give, the charm of a cheerful spirit, was wanting. In October 1817 his friend, Charles Phillips, was suddenly called to his bedside at Brompton, near London, and found him with one side of his face and body paralyzed cold. And this was all, says his friend, that remained of Curran, the light of society, the glory of the forum, the fabricius of the senate, the idol of his country. Yes, even to less than this was he soon to sink. On the evening of the 14th of October he expired, in the 68th year of his age, leaving a public reputation as free from blemish as ever did any man who had acted a leading part in times like those through which he had passed. He was interred in London, but twenty years afterwards the committee of the Glesnevin Cemetery near Dublin obtained permission of his representatives to remove his ashes to their grounds, where they now finally repose. A tomb modelled from the tomb of Scipio covers the grave, bearing the simple but sufficient inscription, Curran. Thus was fulfilled the words he had uttered long before, the last duties will be paid by that country on which they were devolved, nor will it be for charity that a little earth will be given to my bones. Tenderly will those duties be paid, as the debt of well-earned affection, and of gratitude not ashamed of her tears. Grattan's last days were characteristic of his whole life. As the session of 1820 progressed, though suffering from his last struggle with disease, he was stirred by an irresistible desire to make his way to London, and present once more the petition of the Catholics. Since the defeat of his relief bill of 1813, there had been some estrangement between him and the more advanced section of the agitators, headed by O'Connell. 
This he was anxious, perhaps, to heal or to overcome. He thought, moreover, that even if he should die in the effort, it would be, as he said himself, a good end. Amid the trees which a nation had given, and which bowed as if each brought a new civic crown to his head, he consulted with the Catholic delegates early in May. O'Connell was the spokesman, and the scene may yet be rendered immortal by some great national artist. All present felt that the aged patriot was dying, but still he would go once more to London, to fall, as he said, at his post. In leaving Ireland he gave to his oldest friends directions for his funeral, that he might be buried in the little churchyard of Moyana, on the estate the people gave him in 1782. He reached London, by slow stages, at the end of May, and proposed to be in his place in the house on the 4th of June. But this gratification was not permitted him. On the morning of the 4th, at six o'clock, he called his son to his bedside, and ordered him to bring a paper containing his last political opinions. "'Add to it,' he said, with all his old love of antithesis, "'that I die with a love of liberty in my heart, and this declaration in favour of my country in my hand.' So worthily ended the mortal career of Henry Grattan. He was interred by the side of his old friend, Charles James Pox, in Westminster Abbey. The mourners included the highest imperial statesmen, and the Catholic orphan children. His eulogium was pronounced in the House of Commons by William Coyningham Plunkett, and in the Irish capital by Daniel O'Connell. End of chapter 4. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.